0: All right, I've got 12:30, so let's go ahead and get started. We'll wait for the king to take his throne here, and <laughs> now we may start. Um, so. The bad news, I don't have the camera today. I'm trying to record just the audio on my phone so that I can put something up for those that are following along. I actually found out that a number of people do follow this Bible study that can't make it on Tuesdays. They watch it online. Uh, so I want to at least get the audio up for them. So no camera today, but um, and my hair was looking nice too and everything. <laughs> I know I, I dressed in this nice three-piece suit that I'm wearing. <laughs> up in That's right. Uh, announcement tomorrow, uh, Thursday. This Thursday, we're starting at Good Shepherd Church down in South Charlotte, just like half a mile from Carowinds amusement park. A six-week course called Revealed, uh, reintroducing you to the library called the Bible, and it is an overview, a condensed version of my Bible for the rest of a study. But it's six weeks, Thursday night from six thirty to eight thirty. If you know people that want to come but they're like oh i've got kids i need babysitters child is free if they come and register the whole course is only fifteen dollars so they get your workbook and uh, if you need childcare, care gets that but let people know it's open to everybody good shepherd hosts it but it's open to anybody from any church uh, or anybody that wants to come and last thing uh, before we jump into exodus chapter 10 uh, just before, when I was over across the street at Venera, kind of getting ready for today, uh, I saw the an article and I reposted it on my Facebook. But about thirty or so Christians were beheaded. Uh, Ethiopian refugees; some of them had tried to flee and go to other countries. I know Israel sent a few of them back, and they ended up uh, ended up in Libya. And ISIS ended up making a video beheading them. Um, so it's a pretty phenomenal and terrible experience that we as the body of christ share in because we are one body when one part suffers the whole body suffers and i was reminded of that sitting in panera in nice posh south park charlotte about to come over and have a incredibly good meal that i didn't even have to pay for and uh, christians my brothers and sisters people who would be at this study if they were here were uh, had their heads chopped off because they wouldn't deny their faith. And uh, so I wanted to lift up in prayer and be in prayer for the families of the victims, obviously, but also more challenging, be in prayer for the terrorists themselves. Um, we, We seem to forget sometimes that the bulk of our New Testament was written by a religious terrorist who killed Christians. And God got a hold of him and turned his life around and he became Paul, the apostle. So. That's a sobering thought sometimes when our first response is, let's send in tanks and bombs and guns and kill them. Uh, God frequently has different plans. And so the call of the gospel is pretty sobering and pretty humbling. Uh, So who knows, there could be a Paul, future uh, church planter, among those terrorists, cutting off heads and killing and raping and doing all the horrible things they do, which doesn't make it any less horrible. It doesn't make it any less painful. And it doesn't mean we shouldn't pray for justice as well as mercy, Uh, we have to hold that tension. So that was just on my mind and on my heart today, especially as we're reading about the Exodus and people in that same part of the world um, 3,400 years ago, who were uh, experiencing this same type of oppression and destruction uh, at the hands of an evil enemy. And so God chooses to act in the Exodus to redeem his people. And so we today can pray that he would choose to hear the cries of his people, Throughout the Middle East, even today, that He would intervene on their behalf. So, um, just continue to lift that up in your in your prayers when you're praying for things like new jobs and you know nice houses and all the stuff that are fine to pray for. But let's remember, focus and uh, the urgency of what's needed. So, Exodus chapter 10, the last plague that happened. What was the last plague? last week the hailstorm the hail and the fire in the skies translated as lightning but the word is fire uh... could either have been figurative or it could be like will happen later in exodus when god descends on mount sinai and there's smoke and thunderstorm and fire uh... this horrendous storm and it was the seventh of ten plagues the seventh of ten is a significant number it's usually the emphasis the turning point in some way, it's unique, and in this one, it was the God said He was going to unleash the full force of His wrath against Egypt if they didn't let uh, the Israelites go. And so now, these last two plagues are going to be different, and they they're they're ramped up beyond anything of what the previous plagues were. Um, they they spell calamity in the people of Egypt. So we're going to read this next one, chapter ten, verse one. Then the Lord said to Moses, go to Pharaoh, for I've hardened his heart and the hearts of the officials, so that I may perform these miraculous signs of mine among them, so that you may tell your children and grandchildren how I, NIV says, how I dealt harshly with, but the actual literal is how I made fools of, or humiliated, or made sport of, or mockery of, yeah, depending on your translation, Um, how I... um, humiliated made sport of the Egyptians and how I perform my signs among them that you may know that I am I am that I am the Lord Yahweh so uh, God's now telling Israel, telling Moses this, the cycle is not done um, I have all along had a bigger goal in mind other than just securing your release which is securing your release in a way that shows the utter powerlessness of Egypt and their gods. Because remember, the whole socio political structure of Egypt was based on the supremacy of the Egyptian gods, and particularly Pharaoh as the firstborn son of the Egyptian high god, who was the sun god. So, all along, God has been targeting the gods of Egypt and targeting the religion of Egypt, uh, the idolatry of Egypt, as well as its oppressive treatment of the Israelites. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and said to him, This is what the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, says. How long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? Let my people go so that they may serve me. And by now you should know NIV says worship, but that's the word serve. If you refuse to let them go, I will bring locusts into your country tomorrow. They will cover the face of the ground so that it cannot be seen. They will devour what little you have left after the hail, including every tree, in the land NIV says growing in your fields but it's it's kinda every tree in the land is the literal phrase they will fill your houses and those of all your officials and all the Egyptians something neither your fathers nor your forefathers have ever seen from the day they settled in this land until now then Moses turned and left Pharaoh Pharaoh's officials said to him how long will this man be a snare to us let the people go so that they may worship the Lord their God do you not realize that Egypt is ruined? So at this point the threat of the next plague now is locusts. And we tend to think after a deadly hail and thunder and lightning and firestorm that locusts is a step down but that's because we've never had a locust plague. In the ancient Near East the locust plague was a sure sign of impending doom because locusts would obliterate any vegetation that they came across. Locusts can eat their body weight a day, each locust, and their swarms are in the billions. Not the millions, but the billions. They still tend to come through. We're able to fight them in modern times, even in developing countries with pesticides and uh, aerial herbicides and and things like that 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 can mitigate the damage some. In the ancient world, it was nothing. In fact, locusts will be the key uh, image that the Hebrew prophets, I believe Joel, uses to portray a coming invading army and vice versa. Sometimes uh, invading armies are portrayed as locusts swarming over the land and sometimes locust swarms are portrayed as an invading army marching across the land because they do the same thing. They leave destruction in their path. After a locust swarm, there's nothing left. It's like a stripped bear. Uh, It's it's a disaster, especially for Egypt, because remember, Egypt's reputation is the breadbasket of the world. Where did Joseph and his family go when there was a famine? To Egypt. How did he preserve the life of his family and of all the world by storing up grain in Egypt? So now in an ironic reversal, Egypt is going to be plunged back into the same type of famine that brought the Israelites to them in the first place. Only instead of Israelite wisdom saving them, which it did the first time, now the God of the Israelites is going to do completely uh, what the locusts or what the famine would have done in the earlier times, so this is, it's a, it's impending doom, and the servants of Pharaoh get it, they get it, they realize Pharaoh how long you know we they have a change of heart or at least a desire to see the Israelites go even if they don't care about the Israelites they 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 aren't their hearts aren't hardened like Pharaoh's is now that's very important to know because just a few chapters ago it said the hearts of Pharaoh and his officials were hardened. And now his officials at least have unhardened their hearts. So that speaks to our idea of what hardening and all that means, that it's not this foregone predestined conclusion that there is a human response involved. And even the officials whose hearts had previously been hardened can at least come to a state of recognition and and semi-repentance, if you want to call it that. Their hearts aren't set in stone, so to speak, um, but Pharaoh's unfortunately is. So they ask him, how long will you let this man be a snare to us? And that's irony. The, the, the term is how long will you, like a snare is something that it captures. You know, you put a snare out, a piece of a string or something attached to a weight and an animal comes and it grabs it and it holds it until the animal either starves to death or dies from injuries or whatever, or the hunter comes and kills it. A snare is something that entraps, that enslaves. And the irony is that he's saying, how long will you let these people be a snare to us? The people who are entrapping the uh, Egyptians are the people who had been enslaved for 400 years by the Egyptians. So they had been snared by Egypt and now the officials are saying they're a snare to us. So there's, it's, some, it's some irony that often un- goes unnoticed in that metaphor. But Pharaoh's, uh, then Moses said, then Moses and Aaron were brought back to Pharaoh. Go, worship the Lord your God, he said. But just who will be going? (laughs) Moses answered, We'll go with our young and our old, our sons and our daughters, and with our flocks and herds, because we're to celebrate a festival to the Lord. Pharaoh said, The Lord be with you. If I let you go along with your women and children, clearly you're bent on evil. No, have only the men go and worship the Lord, since that's what you've been asking for. And Moses and Aaron were driven out of Pharaoh's presence. So here Pharaoh says, all right, I'll let you go. But he still wants to maintain some (coughs) dignity, some, some leadership authority. So he's still going to dictate terms. Who can go? Well, everybody. No, just your men can go. Wouldn't have been a problem for Egyptian religion because Egyptian religion, the men were the only ones who really needed to offer sacrifices. It wasn't a family event like it would be for the Hebrews. In the Hebrew society, worship in the temple was a family affair. Men, women, children, multi-generations, you came, you offered your sacrifices, you partook of the sacrificial meal in the presence of the Lord as a family. You didn't go to church, you brought church with you when you gathered. And that's something that we as a Western church have lost largely. We go to church and let the church teach our kids. When in reality, the primary influence, religious-wise, should be in the home around the dinner table, as it was for the Hebrews. Uh, so Pharaoh says in a very sarcastic response, so sarcastic that the Hebrew throws a lot of people um, when they try to translate it, but it's, it's basically like him, him saying, of course you can go and God be with you if I ever let you go. It's it's a very it's, it's just sarcastic, and there's no way uh, to put it. Um, And then he says, you know, clearly you're bent on evil, or clearly evil is before your face, or wickedness, or you're planning something. You mean to do evil. And so he sends them out. They're driven out of his presence. So verse 12, the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over Egypt, so that the locusts will swarm over the land and devour everything growing in the fields, everything left by the hail. So Moses stretched out his staff over Egypt, and the Lord made an east wind blow across the land all that day and all that night. That is a foreshadowing phrase. When they get to the shores of the Red Sea, there's going to be an east wind that blows over the face of the waters all day and all night and parts the Red Sea. So this is a supernatural act of God generating these results for his people. Um, By morning the wind had brought the locusts. They invaded all Egypt and settled down in every area of the country in great numbers. Never before had there been such a plague of locusts, nor will there ever be again. They covered all the ground until it was darkened, or, or until it was black, some translations say. They devoured all that was left after the hail, everything growing in the fields and the fruit on the trees, nothing green remained on tree or plant in all the land of Egypt. Pharaoh quickly summoned his Moses and Aaron and said, I've sinned against the Lord your God and against you. Now forgive my sin once more and pray to the Lord your God to take away from me this death. And IV says to take this deadly plague away from me but he really says to take away from me this death. Because Pharaoh realizes what a locust plague that strips everything from the land means. It means death of his people, of his country. Uh, so it's a, it's stronger than what the the NIV translates it as take away from you this deadly plague. Uh, he, he's begging for his life and the life of his people now. He realizes he's wrong and he uses that language I've sinned and we talked last week how that's not necessarily moral language it's more legal like okay I'm in the wrong, you're in the right, I've acted unjustly, you've acted justly. So it's not the case of Pharaoh when he uses that word sin he doesn't have the same thing we have in mind when we think of sin he has in mind, okay, you've won this legal battle, or you've, you've won your case, or you, you know, you've pleaded successfully, so you're in the right, I'm in the wrong. Pray to God, let's, let's move past this. Moses then left Pharaoh and prayed to the Lord, and the Lord changed the wind to a very strong west wind, which caught up the locusts and carried them into the Red Sea. Not a locust was left anywhere in Egypt. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he would not let the Israelites go. Again, foreshadowing this east wind that comes, or this west wind now that comes, what blows them into the Red Sea. The army of locusts is driven into the Red Sea where they're done away with. The army of Pharaoh will literally be driving in the Red Sea, and they'll be done away with in just a few chapters. So there's some stylistic things going on there that link the chapters, but also the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. We talked last week how Pharaoh had reached the point of no return. This is the ninth plague, uh, or excuse me, this is the eighth plague. He's had all of these chances and there came a point where he reached, He it, it came. He, he became so intractable that it's like God saying, now it's too late for you to turn. There's a point where repentance is going to be impossible because you're no longer in the driver's seat, I am, and I have a plan to use your sin and your stubbornness for even greater results, theologically and, and, um, and justice-wise for my people. So Pharaoh had already reached, now again, it's not like Pharaoh was a good, nice guy and God took control of his heart and made him evil. It was the case of God's, the, the idea of hardening, I said this a few weeks ago, but I wanna make sure to reemphasize it. In Hebrew, hardening, it, the term chazak, it means to, to strengthen or to solidify or to make rigid, And the image is a potter. You, you make a pottery piece and it's, it's soft and you're, you know, if you've seen the movie Ghost, you're, you're doing that and Patrick Swayze's there holding you and all this stuff. And then you take that soft pot and what do you do with it? You put it in the kiln and you fire it and it comes out hardened and unchangeable. It can't be molded and shaped anymore. It's done. Before the hardening, it can be molded. It can be shaped. It can be moved. It can respond to the hands of the potter. After the hardening, it's unresponsive, and it can either be used or destroyed. And so that's the image of the hardening of the heart, is not taking something that's one way and turning it into something else. God doesn't do that. What it is is God saying, This is how you've acted. This is how you've reacted. This is what you've become. And now you will remain that way because I will use even your stubbornness and your sin for my own glory and my own purposes. So it's a a fine line we have to walk in this idea of understanding God's sovereignty, human responsibility, free will, predestining, all that kind of stuff. And we want to hold that balance and say, yes, there is freedom to respond, and hardening isn't permanent as Pharaoh's officials were able to, to change and to respond, but at some point, it will become set, and there's no turning back. The prophet Jeremiah, when you read his words, he's lamenting over Jerusalem and its impending destruction, and God will tell him at one point, just before the Babylonian armies come, God will say, do not pray for these people anymore they will not repent even if they did I will not forgive them the judgment is set in stone and it cannot be averted so there comes a point in that and it's always an extreme point it's always near the end it's not something that happens every day so you don't want you know go around in anxiety wondering if you've reached the point of no return if you're even wondering that you haven't it's when there's this this stubbornness this refusal to acknowledge God in any way shape or form and so that's where we reach so now The final plague in the cycle of nine. There's a threefold cycle, three plagues, three plagues, three plagues, and there's going to be an interlude. Then there will be the last one, the tenth. So this is the last one before the last one. This is the penultimate plague, if you want a fancy English word to describe the one before the last. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand towards the sky so that darkness will be over Egypt, darkness that can be felt, Or that can also be translated darkness that leads to feeling and groping about. It's two ways to translate the word. So Moses stretched out his hand towards the sky and total darkness covered all Egypt for three days. No one could see anyone else or leave his place for three days. Yet, excuse me, all the Israelites had light in the places where they lived. Then Pharaoh summoned Moses and said, go, worship the Lord. Even your women and children may go with you. Only leave your flocks and herds behind. So he's sick of the darkness. You see that Pharaohs realizes he's fearful now. This is a big deal. We'll say why in just a minute. And so he says, go. But that one last little bit of control, he just can't give up control. And so he says, leave your flocks and your herds. Why? Because they're collateral. Israel is a herding society. So without their flocks and their herds, they would have to come back to Egypt. They couldn't go forever. So he's still trying to maintain his terms at the very end. Why was this sign so devastating? Was it just an eclipse? No, it was not an eclipse. It was not an eclipse. Israel had light in their places. The Egyptians had darkness even within their homes, meaning that their lamps didn't even help them. It says they couldn't move about. So not, it doesn't mean that night was extended or there were clouds that covered this, none of that. That doesn't, that's not what the biblical text is describing. It's describing a darkness that causes groping about, causes being able, not being able to see anything, anything, like an inky blackness of, some, don't know what it is, darkness that can be felt, darkness that, you know, whatever it is, this is a supernatural lack of all light. In the ancient world where there was no such thing as electricity or floodlights or car headlights or chariot headlights or anything like that. Nothing. Total darkness. Why is this a big deal? Because in the Egyptian religion, all of the gods served the one sun god. Or all of the gods were at least beneath the sun god. The sun god, whether it was he was known as Ra, he was known as Ray, sometimes he was known as Atum, sometimes he was known as Amon re when they... Combined two gods, uh, different types of sun gods, they were all the same idea. The sun rises and it sets. That's the sun god riding across the sky in his chariot, going to the underworld, circling back and coming again. As long as that sun is rising, everything's good. And the Nile will continue to flow. The crops will continue to grow. The animals will be able to eat. We will be able to have life. The sun providing light was the heart and the core of uh, Egyptian religion. It was the symbol of Pharaoh himself. If you look at Egyptian art and iconography, there's always discs above their head or rays shooting down from those discs. And that's the the image of the sun. Their ultimate deity, their supreme deity was the sun and the light that it gives. And now for three days, not just one day, so it wasn't some weird event that was gone. Three days, there was no light. Three days, the gods of Egypt were completely overthrown. Creation was restored back to its original chaotic darkness. This is all of the themes that would be circulating in the minds of the Egyptians as they're seeing this. Their entire theology is being thrown upside down. Um, Their pantheon, all their gods, have been shown to be completely impotent in the face of this one God throughout all the plagues except for one. Throughout all the plagues, the sun was still rising and the sun was still setting. So Ra was still somehow active and now no more. He is done. So it's, it's this, uh, we can't really appreciate it because we don't have anything like that in our religion or especially in our political, social makeup. But it was, it, was a, 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 it would be like a form of terror, anxiety, depression, um, you know, just all of it balled up into one. Like we as a nation are doomed when there's no sun for three days, with no light of any kind. So it's a very, very terrifying sign. It is, some people wonder, well, how's darkness worse than hail or locusts, whatever. The psychological and the theological effects of this sign are, are greater than any of the ones before. The ones before could almost be explained naturalistically. You know, like, oh, okay, these disease came from the frogs, and then that infected the livestock, and, you know, like we've talked about, and then there was a hailstorm, and, you know, that brought the locusts because of the low pressure brought them in, and all this kind of stuff. You can't explain three days of pitch blackness. Not eclipse, not clouds, but nothing, no light whatsoever. So Pharaoh's going to exercise one last little bit of control as he tells them to go. Verse 25, but Moses said, you must allow us to have sacrifices and burnt offerings to present to the Lord our God. Our livestock must go too with us. Not a hoof is to be left behind. We have to use some of them in worshiping the Lord our God, and until we get there, we won't know what we are to use to worship the Lord. He uses that phrase worship, which is serve, multiple times there. Sticking the knife in Pharaoh. We are going to serve our God. We don't know what we need to serve our God, but we are going to serve our God saying that to the one who they have been serving for 400 years. So it's very, uh, it's, it's the polite language couches a very intense conversation. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart and he was not willing to let them go. Pharaoh said to Moses, get out of my sight. Make sure you don't appear before me again. The day you see my face, you will die. There's some blasphemous irony in that because the belief in, in the Hebrew Bible is when you anybody who sees the face of the Lord will surely die or the face of you know when you come face to face with god that so pharaoh is is somewhat in his threat it's kinda working on two levels when if you come before me again i'm gonna kill you but said it in a way that echoes the deity echoes the divine prerogative of you can't see my face and live so there's a prideful haughtiness in pharaoh's threat he's also threatening the emissary the prophet of a god and that was illegal in the ancient near east under ancient near east uh... international relations You could not punish the messenger. You couldn't punish the prophet if it was from another God. The prophet was to be at least listened to because it was recognized, well, this person isn't the enemy. It's the God whose message is speaking. That's the enemy. So prophets had this type of diplomatic immunity in the ancient world. That's why it was such a scandal if you did kill the messenger. Uh it was a violation of of protocol and and of, of international law and all of that stuff. So he's threatening, and Moses says, verse 29, just as you say, or you've said it, I'll never appear before you again, or I'll never be before your face again. Now, the conversation doesn't end there. This is where a chapter break is not helpful. Chapters came way later, and they aren't inspired, so you can freely ignore chapters in the Bible. We just use them because they're helpful tracking points. But there's going to be a parenthetical Statement in verses chapter eleven verses one through three. You can just draw parentheses around those in your Bible if you want to. That's a parentheses of of. Pharaoh says this. You'll die if you come before me again. Moses says, "All right, you said it. You'll never see my face again." Pause. Narrate three verses. Then the conversation picks back up in chapter eleven verse four. So the conversation is not over, even though the chapter is, and even though we're out of time. so have a great week. Come back next week, Chapter 11, bring your friends, bring your coworkers, and uh, we'll see you then.